0: one giraffe for a whole day and every minute wrote down what it did. And I can tell you they don't do very much.
1: Hello, I'm John Rossi. I'm a touring drummer with a love for all things animal. When I'm on the road, I spend as much time as possible visiting zoos, aquariums, rescues, and rehab facilities. Now I want to share those places with you. I'll be talking to keepers, vets, conservationists, volunteers, anyone who is as passionate about animals as I am. Join me on my Rossifari. Hi, hello. Oh, and hello to you too. I didn't see you there. Welcome to the podcast with a host that's willing to really stick his neck out for conservation, the Rasafari Safari Podcast. Now in Technicolor. Y'all, today's episode is one of those fun conservation ones that I love, and uh, I'm really excited to bring it to you. You know, One of the things that I've learned doing this podcast that still blows my mind on the regular is just how small so many conservation organizations are. When you think of these amazing organizations like Project Golden Frog or today's guest, the Draft Conservation Foundation, you tend to think of a lot of people doing a lot of work. But as we come to hear time and time again, that is not correct. Well, it's halfway correct. It is a lot of amazing work, but it's only being done by a few people. And that's the story you're going to hear today. But it's also the story of Ross Afari. As most of you know, I run this podcast basically on my own. I get some music help from a buddy here or there every once in a while. And of course, I get some editing help from Zoe, but uh, she doesn't really get a say in the matter. Um, and that's it. Everything else is me. So uh, if you want to help keep this bad boy going and, and keep me able to work on this as, as much as I have been lately, uh, please consider hitting up Patreon.com slash You can uh, make some donations there. It starts at $3 a month to help support the podcast. And that's less than the price of going to see one of the new Star Wars movies or the the Space Treks or the, um, heck, even, even a drink at the Starbucks. So uh, yeah, give it a shot. Take a look and uh, throw some support this way if you can. Also, of course, make sure you're following along on Instagram and Facebook at Ross Safari and TikTok at Ross Safari pod. And oh my gosh, enough with this. I'm going to stop now. Let's get to today's episode. I am bringing you an interview with Stephanie Fennessy, the director of the Giraffe Conservation Foundation. Now, I'm sure that any of you who have been at any zoos and looked at the draft exhibits have heard of this incredible conservation organization. And of course, if you are a listener of the Safari podcast, then I am sure that you are amongst the elite few that actually read the signs at zoos. But if not, let me tell you, giraffes are facing a problem. And it is a problem known as the silent extinction. You're going to hear a lot more about that and the steps that the Giraffe Conservation Foundation are taking to uh, help prevent that in the near future. Like as soon as I stop this intro. I love this tale as it is a tale of two people falling in love while starting an incredible conservation organization. And I'm, I'm so excited to share all of that with you. And, you know, this isn't just about looking at numbers and figuring out how to how to help giraffes, you know, with cool Instagram posts or whatever. We are going to talk about what it's like to rehome giraffes and how you can dart them to get genetic information and all kinds of stuff. We're going to tell you why you're probably wrong if you uh, think you can identify species by a very common method used by people. And probably my favorite part about this is the fact that... um you know, whenever I have a conservationist on, uh they get a little nervous about the poop story. Poop story? Because a lot of them don't have nearly the hands-on experience with animals that zookeepers do. But uh <laughs> let me tell you what. Oftentimes they come up with some of the craziest ones and uh this is one of those. So yeah, wait until we get there, y'all. But first, there's a whole lot of other stuff to talk about. So without further ado, here is my interview with Stephanie Fennessy of the Giraffe Conservation Foundation. All right. So let's start with you telling me who you are, where you work and what you do there.
0: Hi, I'm uh, Steph Fennessy. I'm director of the Giraffe Conservation Foundation, and I'm talking to you from Windhoek, Namibia at the
1: moment. Oh, that's so exciting. Uh, thank you first of all, for doing this and figuring out the the schedule um, with, with the time zones. It's always tricky. Um, how are things in Namibia?
0: Things are actually fantastic. Namibia is one of the most beautiful countries in the world. I might be a little bit biased, but uh, I really, really love it here. Um, as you might be able to tell from my accent, I'm not Namibian, I'm German, um, but I've been living here for quite a while and absolutely by choice. We just really, really love it. It's, um, we have about 335 days of sunshine every year. Um, and what's not to love?
1: That sounds absolutely incredible. And I I would love to travel there once, you know, travel is allowed out of my country. again.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And uh, I actually had a a really exciting day today because very super surprisingly, I got vaccinated today for the first vaccination. Ah, congratulations. uh, Yeah, we are just so chuffed. It was a total surprise because I think about... 1,500 people have been vaccinated in this country so far, and uh, I'm one of them. Yay. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Fantastic. I love that. Um, cool. So why don't we, we will get to, to the, the um, GCF, but let's start off talking about you a little bit. Um, you're the director, so I assume you must have quite the journey to have gotten there. So, so tell me, what got you into animals?
0: Um, I'm actually an environmental engineer by trade, so I come from the technical side. Um, but I came to Namibia after I did my master's in environmental engineering. I did industrial engineering first, but then yeah, my master's was in environmental engineering, but still very little to do with animals. It was more I looked at conservation and people um, and came to giraffe basically by marrying into it. I uh <laughs> I met my husband here, um, Dr. Julian Fennessy, who did his PhD uh, eventually on giraffe in northwestern Namibia. Um, and when he was developing the methodologies for his his studies, uh, we were already dating, and I spent a lot of time with him in the field in a very remote part of Namibia. And we, um, yeah, tested all the methodology together, and um, I really. Fell in love with Namibia giraffe and my husband at the same time.
1: <laughs> Is he tall? Was there some correlation there? <laughs>
0: Actually, not. Oh, okay.
1: <laughs> no, that's, uh, that's quite the romantic very story. That's looking, of course, but <laughs> 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 that's really romantic in a weird, nerdy sort of way. But that's kind of that's, that's what we like on this podcast. So that's pretty great. Um, so, how did you decide to move from Germany to Namibia?
0: Um, ah, lots of coincidences. I met people who I studied in Sweden at the time and one of my fellow students came from Namibia. And on one of the first days when I met him, he said, and if anyone wants to do a project in Namibia, I have contacts. And I thought, yeah, whatever. Um, But then there was quite a few people from Africa in my class. And so I I learned a lot about Africa. We had a lot of African case studies. So I got really interested. And um, when it was time to pick a topic for my master's thesis, um, I thought, why not so yeah i came to namibia to do my research and really really enjoyed it and the ngo where i did my research through the desert research foundation of namibia they offered me a project job afterwards for for six months (laughs) so i came for six months in uh 1999, <laughs> so uh, I that's stayed a, a bit longer.
1: Six, that's a long six months.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes, we, we moved on, so I met, met my husband. He's Australian, actually. Um We lived in Australia for a bit and in Kenya, but we have been back here in Namibia now since uh, 2010, Um have two kids here, and um yeah, we really... We really think it's one of the best places to live in the world. Um, it's a good combination of we love nature, we love camping, we love being out and seeing wildlife, which is fantastic here. Um, Namibia has only about two and a half million people, so it's not very densely populated, which is nice. Um, but at the same time, we live in the capital, and it's a bit like a small small town. Um, not very exciting, but uh, we love it. We have good friends here, and we're really happy here.
1: That's that's really awesome. I'm, you know, I'm glad you said that too because one thing that I've noticed, I feel like, um, at least in America, because we are we are a very inwardly focused nation, uh, often to our detriment. But I feel like a lot of the people here think of a place like Namibia or just anywhere in Africa, anywhere, and think. Um, it's very backwards and very not, you know, technologically advanced or anything, but I have to tell you, uh, your internet connection here on zoom is one of the best that I've heard ever <laughs> doing this podcast, uh, way better than most of the U S based ones. Um, and can you just speak to that for a minute? Like, you know, what is, what is life like there?
0: Um, I always say our day to day life is, is really like, like living in a, in a small medium sized city. Um, we have all the luxuries, but also the benefits of living in a not too, too large part, um, town. So our commute is short. <laughs> it takes me, um, five minutes to drive the kids to school and then another five minutes to get to the office. And, um, if it takes a little bit longer, I get frustrated, um, <laughs> We, yeah, we don't have much choices when it comes to shops. So it's not a, if, if, if you're into shopping, um, Namibia is not a great place to live. Um, and we, yeah, there's not really that much to do. So also if you are really culturally interested and want to go to theatres and concerts all the time, also not the best place to be. But um, if you love nature and hanging out with friends it's fantastic Um, and we are lucky enough to travel a lot as I said I'm German my husband is Australian so we have family Um, we quite regularly go to America as well for fundraising so if you have opportunities to get out and get all your cultural fixes and your exciting food fixes in in other countries then uh, it's fantastic.
1: Very cool. so what what led to uh, your involvement with the draft conservation fund? I mean, I, I know that your husband was studying them and doing all of the um, research and you were helping, and all of that's amazing. But what led to your involvement with the this specific organization?
0: Um, we founded it. <laughs> so that um, when uh, Julian started his research on, on giraffe, he obviously had to do a lot of background research. Um, and he realized quite quickly that there was a lot of information available on many other animals and the giraffe he was studying. They live in a very remote desert environment, where there is just seasonally fly- flowing rivers. Um, but there's quite a few elephant as well. So giraffe compete uh, for food with with elephant there. So initially he wanted to compare elephant and giraffe and look how they uh, utilize the environment. But he realized a lot was known about elephant and there was a lot of people involved in elephant research. But there was really hardly anything available on giraffe so he really thought there's a gap um he was also quite pragmatic and thought for a phd that's great if no one else has done research then whatever he did was quite new um so he didn't have to have, have to do super complicated things a basic uh, ecology study um yeah, so this is how it started. And as part of the background research, we also looked in, in how many giraffes there are in Africa. And we realized that there was also very little information available on that. Um, and when we started compiling this information, we realized there was far less than anybody thought. Or actually, no one had really thought much about it before. Um Now we know that there is uh, only about 111,000 giraffe left in Africa. This is um, one giraffe for every four elephants on the continent. Um, And most people don't know. So that was quite shocking. And yeah, on the back of that finding, we realized that there was really a need to to try and draw attention to giraffe and uh, to their plight.
1: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I know that the term um, the silent extinction is used for what's going on with giraffes a lot. Uh, can you speak to that a little bit?
0: Yeah, that's actually something that uh, we started saying quite oh, a few man, years ago. Oh, man, that's so cool. That's yeah, <laughs>
1: awesome. I, uh, I didn't realize that. Very cool.
0: Yeah, so because, yeah, no one – it was literally happening before all our eyes and no one was realizing. And at the same time, obviously, there's a little bit of a double meaning because a lot of people think that giraffe are mute, which – is not true but um, they're not very loud animals (laughs) so um, it's really a a double meaning there so um, yeah so one of the things we do is um, we talk a lot about giraffe and we try to draw attention to to their plight we try to tell people that they're in trouble and really need our help Um, and at the same time we we work with lots of African governments and other partners, um, to also save them on the ground, but getting the message out there to a wider population is really important. And it's on the back of that, that, uh, a few years ago, we also, um, we started World Giraffe Day. There was really a idea that came up where, where we thought, how can we help giraffe? How we, can we get more attention? And we realized there was days for lots of things, but not giraffe at that stage. So, um, we um started it and we picked the twenty first of June, um, the longest day or night here in wow. Africa for the tallest animal. Nice. And now it's celebrated all over the world.
1: Oh wow. What okay, so before we go into anything else, what does it feel like to know that, that you and your hubs just like have this huge impact for this huge species?
0: You actually don't think about it a lot We just get on with work and uh, hope that we make a difference but sometimes you sit back and you think yeah actually we are making a difference and that's pretty cool it's um yeah we are really passionate about what we are doing obviously and um we um, work a lot and our kids sometimes get really frustrated and they ask us to have giraffe free days um but uh, we love what we are doing and it's it's great to see to see the impact and to see that um we are actually succeeding and and drawing more attention there's more people involved in giraffe conservation now there's a couple more organizations who are starting to focus on giraffe conservation um which is super
1: very cool so um i feel like giraffes have a uh, something almost going against them which is that um They are in most zoos. They're really, really common and easy to see. Uh, And so I think that in part because of that, people don't realize, you know, what's going on with them in the wild. Um, I feel like most people, the average person probably doesn't even know there are like different species of drafts, you know, and and all of that kind of information. Um, What what can we do to combat that?
0: Yeah, it's really, I mean, we talk a lot about this and we are now experts in marketing. Um, Julian, obviously, is a biologist. As I said, I'm an environmental engineer. But, um, yeah, we talk a lot about it. And and giraffes are literally everywhere. I mean, they're on... Kids' clothes, they're uh, on lots of logos. They're really omnipresent in advertising, marketing, and as you said, very popular in zoos and even in a lot of African parks when you go to, to Kruger National Park, to Etosha here in Namibia, uh, Masai Mara, you always see giraffe. They're quite prominent. So that's why people haven't realised that there is actually fewer than than they thought. Um, the other thing that they have for and against them is that everyone loves giraffe. I mean, it's very rare that I, I really have not met many people who say I just don't like giraffe. Um, they're very uncontroversial, but um, at the same time, um, their demise is not as spectacular as with elephant or rhino. Um, they are poached for for body parts, and that is quite visual and and people see that they're slaughtered for a purpose. With giraffe, it's mainly much more subtle. It's simply habitat loss, habitat fragmentation. There's just less and less space. Um, There is some poaching of giraffe as well, but normally it's it's for meat, um, which is just not very spectacular. Um, At the same time, they also don't show such human-like behavior like in elephants you see families hanging out together you see the babies playing and the adults looking after them so you can um, humanize their behavior much better Um, giraffe are in a way a bit more boring they don't really show that much um, yeah human-like behavior so these are all factors that obviously contribute to them going under the radar a little bit
1: yeah, makes sense. And um, I know that one of the things that that you guys did to uh, combat some of the lack of knowledge about giraffes is you started a uh, giraffe resource center. So tell me a little bit about that.
0: Yeah, that was, again, another thing that there is not too much information available, but there is actually, and there is papers being published, and there have been a few more students over the last few years, um but there's just no one place where all this information can be found and especially um if you're in America and you are associated with a bigger university as a student it's easy for you to have access to scientific publications but if you're a student in in Africa or if you're uh, a park manager in Africa, getting access to to scientific publications is often not that easy so what we have been doing over the years we have collected all the publications we have come across and now still come across and uh, we uh, scanned them or make the PDFs available online for ev- anyone to use for for common use so we um, you can use it for your research obviously you can't reprint it. Um, But yeah, the Giraffe Resource Center is is linked to our website and anyone can just go there and look for a lot of scientific, mainly scientific papers, but quite a few public publications.
1: Cool. All right. Um, And so tell me, how how big is your team now? Um, We are
0: slowly growing. We are now, I think we are 19 people. Um, We are based in several African countries. Um, We come from many different African countries um, and America, uh, New Zealand. We have a New Zealander in the team. Um, So, yeah, we are quite diversified. We have our main offices here in Windhoek and we are 10 people here. And then we have a couple of staff in Zimbabwe, in Nigeria, in Uganda, Kenya, Um, one person, Postdoc with the Smithsonian is based in America. Yeah,
1: that's, that's us. That's amazing. I, uh, you know, before I started doing this podcast and talking to conservationists, I thought these organizations were huge. <laughs> I thought something like the the Draft Conservation Foundation, which is something that you know we've all heard of. I mean, if you go to a zoo, you have heard of you guys. And I, I assumed that you were hundreds of people doing work before I started this. Nineteen is actually one of the larger ones <laughs> that I've heard
0: of. Yeah, and we have only grown over the last few years. We used to be a very very small team, um, but we are slowly growing, which is which is exciting. But we also we. We, um, yeah, we don't plan to get too big because um, that would mean that I would only sit at my desk and manage people. So I wouldn't like that. <laughs> so you have to find a find a balance. But yeah, I take it as a compliment that you thought we are much bigger.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, you're having an amazing impact and I, I just, I find oh, that thanks. wonderful. Um, so tell me, you said that you don't just want to sit at your desk and manage people all day. So what is a day in the life of the director of the GCF like? What do you do?
0: No day is like the other. I'm a I'm German, so I'm a list writer. <laughs> I start most days with a long list and by the end of the day, the list is often much longer than what I started with, <laughs> but I still did a lot of things. Um, yeah, it can be, be anything. I mean, I do spend a lot of time in the office. Um, we, for example, run the largest environmental education program in Namibia as well. So, we have three staff who do the day-to-day running they take up to two and a half thousand kids a year into the field for a day um but i do a lot of their backstopping i do the fundraising for them um help with communications and we are just for example reviewing the workbook they they we have a workbook that kids um, take home and we are just developing a, a more Africa-wide one that we can then also use in, in different countries. So I spent a lot of time working with the designer and the copywriter at the moment on that. Um, I answer a lot of emails. I do a lot of donor management, fundraising, proposal writing. Um, I review most of the reports that we publish online. Um Sometimes I'm allowed to go into the field and uh, see a giraffe, which is very exciting. Um, Yeah, so if possible, I I do field work. Um, We often do that together, Um, especially in the holidays. We try to take the kids along as well. Um, Our kids are 12 and 15, so they still need their parents around a fair bit. And, um, yeah, so we do survey trips, we do giraffe translocations, we do DNA sampling, we have meetings, um, yeah, lots of things.
1: All right, cool. Well, let's, uh, let's break down some of those things. So, um, tell me like when you're out in the field with your family, um, what kind of stuff are you doing out there?
0: Um, For example, here in Namibia, we have a long-term monitoring program where we, when Julian did his PhD, um, we took photos of all the giraffe in this population. And um, as you probably know, each giraffe is different. Their pattern is like a human fingerprint. So by taking photos of the left and the right side, you can find them and uh, identify them individually. Um, So at Initially, when we started, we just really wanted to find out how many er giraffes are in this population, um, who hangs out with who, um, do they move long distances or not, or is there differences in that, Um, what do they eat, how do they spend their time. So we just really did a lot of observational studies, just we watched them, we watched one giraffe for a whole day and every minute wrote down what it did. And I can tell you they don't do very much. They eat a lot, (laughs) they ruminate a lot, they walk a bit and they just stand there and stare. Um, They're vigilant then, of course. Um, And um, yeah, and we found out that some giraffes move a lot and others don't, just like humans. Some people like to go running and others don't. Um some giraffe, we, we say that they have a fission-fusion relationship. That means giraffe don't have like a very uh, strict herd structure. They come together and they go apart. But some of them spend more time together than others. So we do observational studies like that. Um, in other uh, populations in Uganda, we do photo surveys where we go um, for a few days, do certain photo uh, survey routes and try to photograph every single giraffe. Um, and now, over time, because we we have done that many many times, we now know now that in Murchison Falls National Park, for example, there's one thousand four hundred and fifty giraffe, and not seven hundred, how, as we thought when we started the study. Um, yeah, so this is that. Then we take DNA samples, as you said before. Um, Our research has shown that there's not one, but four different species of giraffe. And how do we know that? So we collected for the last over 20 years now, uh, DNA samples from giraffe all over Africa. And we sent them to Germany to some very clever people in a lab who do something. They put all the samples in machines and lots of numbers come out. And (laughs) they tell us that um, these Giraffe, some of them are very different from each other and that uh, the different species of giraffe are actually more different from each other than polar bears and brown bears.
1: Wow. Um, I have to tell you, it's really cool to be talking to one of the people who... Found so many of the draft facts that I like to share with people whenever I take friends to zoos or whenever I post draft picks on my Instagram or anything. Um, it's just really cool. Thank you again for doing this. i'm I'm a big fan of of the work y'all are doing.
0: Soon, thank you, and and thank you for sharing it, which is much more important because it doesn't really. Yes, it's it's cool to find things and to, but it doesn't help if if no one talks about it. So yeah, it's really great to meet someone who is passionate and and shares this information.
1: Well, thank you. Um. So tell me, how do you get DNA from a giraffe? <laughs> With great difficulty. Um. <laughs> um we we
0: tried stools or poo samples but the quality is not really that great so we have to take uh, skin samples so obviously you don't just walk up to a giraffe and ask for a skin sample we um we shoot at a giraffe with a dropout dart it's a um it's a bit like a it's like 10, 15 centimetre long dart that we shoot at the giraffe with uh, different kinds of that's different rifle systems, like it's, it's veterinary equipment. Um, and they take a little sample out of the bum, mainly of the giraffe. Um, so it falls out again and then we, we, we look for it and we take the sample out and put it in a vial and send it to the lab. Or when we translocate giraffe or tag them and we have a giraffe on the ground, then we will also take a skin sample at the same time.
1: Makes sense. Makes sense. And when, um, when you shoot a giraffe in the booty and then this dart falls out, um, how is there much risk of them like stepping on it trampling on it does it does it seem to bother them much and i say that fully understanding that sometimes we need to cause a little discomfort to do research and help species and there's nothing wrong with that but what is their reaction like in the wild
0: um very diff. it really depends and differs a lot but we always say it it's a bit like a bee sting probably i mean it's more than a mosquito sting, they, they feel it, but often they do a little jump, but normally they do a little jump or they run a couple of steps. Um, some of the the veterinary guns we use, they actually uh, have a charge in it. So that means there is a noise and the giraffe react more to the noise actually we feel than, than to the actual dart. Um, the dart then Often drops out immediately. Um, sometimes it gets stuck a little bit because the giraffe has a very thick skin, um, and that's why it's important to to hit it preferably on the booty because then it can with a, with a swash the tail and just flick it out. Um, sometimes we have to follow the giraffe a bit until the dart falls out, and yeah, depending on. The environment, if the grass is really high, it can be quite challenging to find the darts. But, um, yeah, over the time, we have been become quite good at spotting it and trying. I mean, you always think you know exactly where the dart fell. Yeah, you don't. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so I'm curious. You have your kids out on some of these little adventures. Um are they into it is it is, are, are they going to be little you know are they going to be conservationists when they grow up do you think or or are they kind of like I know you said they need some draft free days and I get that but um, overall what's what's it like uh, for the kids out in the in the field
0: um one maybe one definitely not <laughs> <laughs> so they're very different um, No, they, they both love being out and and love being camping uh, going camping and we often do it with with colleagues, with local rangers or friends. So they love spending time with different people. Um, Molly, our daughter, who's 12, she she loves animals and she is really into it. She she looks at every little bug and she really, really wants to work in a zoo when she grows up because she wants to be close to animals. And we have been very lucky that often we um, when we travel, we give a lot of talks in zoos. And so we have been behind the scenes a lot and um, she loves it. Um, our son, who is fifteen, he would really, really like to become a professional gamer. I think at this stage, as every fifteen-year-old, <laughs> um, but um, he still loves being out as well. But uh, he's definitely not as much into it as she is.
1: All right, cool. Well, I, I yeah, I think that's the first time I've heard of of teenage or or preteen uh, conservationists. That's that's pretty awesome. I dig it. Yeah. All right. So you keep saying this word and it is translocation. So <laughs> tell me what a giraffe translocation, what that means and what it looks like.
0: Yeah. Giraffe translocation. That sounds, it sounds quite simple, but it, it, it's not. <laughs> it's a major operation. So what we do in some countries, um, for example, in Uganda or also here in Namibia, there is areas where giraffe historically lived but they have either gone locally extinct or the populations are very very small that they are not really biology biologically viable so then it's one option is to bring giraffe back to that area or to boost the existing uh, population by moving some giraffe into the area Um, which means you first have to find a population where you can take them from. And because we now know that there is four different species and several different subspecies, so obviously you have to get your facts right where you get them from to bring them to different places because you don't want to dilute biodiversity. You don't want to mix them. Um, And then you have to capture them. And you can do that in two different ways, either individual capture or mass capture, depending on the environment, um, the number of giraffe you want to catch and the number of giraffe you have. Um, So in individual capture, you have to dart each giraffe individual with with a drug that makes it a little bit slower that you can catch it. Um, Then you have to physically restrain it and bring it to the ground Um, before you then lead it onto a chariot or a little trailer, um, bring it to a holding boma, it's called, a holding pen, where you collect the giraffe before you then eventually load them on a truck and bring them to their new home. And what I now just described in about one and a half minutes takes... Months and months of planning um, with your local conservation partner. First, often we work with the government to develop a national giraffe conservation strategy first to, to get ideas what are the problems, what do we want to do, where do we want to potentially move giraffe, or first we count them all. And so it's a long process, and then it's planning, and then training, and fundraising, and then doing it.
1: That's amazing that's wow. What a, the mental image of just all of that is, is so much. Um, Very cool.
0: Very cool. Yeah. So maybe go to, if you go to our website, we have a YouTube channel. There's quite a few videos where we have um, all the operation trigger videos. They are about different translocations in Uganda. They visualize it a little bit better. What I just described. uh, And you can just see it's It's very involved. It's very, uh, can be very dangerous for, for animals and people. Um, but um, yeah, as you, you said before, sometimes you have to, the, the bigger conservation goal is the important thing here and bringing back giraffe into areas where they have gone locally extinct is not only fantastic for the population, but it's also great for the country. <clears throat> it's great for the people who live near or with giraffe. It, it instills a lot of, of national pride um, so it's it's a really worthwhile um, operation.
1: Yeah, that is really cool. I'm actually uh, sneaking a peek at some of the the photos of it right now, and it's uh, wow! That is that is quite cool. the the procedure. Um, why is it called uh, Operation Twiga?
0: Twiga is the Swahili word for giraffe. So yeah, um, makes in sense in East Africa people speak swahili and yeah that came up we thought when we did the first one we thought it would be nice to have a cool name (laughs) we didn't really know we were going to do five of them in uganda and uh now in many different other different countries as well
1: very cool uh so you mentioned that you travel to zoos and give talks and stuff um tell me what that's like and what does what what purpose does that serve for gcf I can
0: hardly remember what it was like before COVID when we could travel. <laughs> um, yeah, zoos play a really important role for us. As I as I said before, um, it's great to know all these things, but we have to share it with people. And it's good to know that giraffes are in trouble, but we have to get this information out to people. Um, and while we are now 19 people, we are still most of us somewhere in Africa, Um where it's it's great to work with local partners and and let them know and let governments know, um, but we really need to reach a wider audience because obviously we need to um, raise money to to do our work. We we are totally reliant on on donor funding. So um, zoos play a really important role for us to to get the message out there. Um, zoos are visited by millions of people in pre-COVID times and hopefully soon again um, around the world and for us to to share our information they're really a a really important partner and um, we that's why we also we help to develop materials sometimes zoos contact us and say we are just redoing our giraffe exhibit Can you help with some photos? Can you help with some information? Um, And we are really trying to, we are really open to that and and try to help as much as we can because we are passionate about getting the latest up-to-date information out there to a wider public.
1: Very cool. And that leads me to a question that I don't even know if there is an answer to yet, but I would would love to hear your take. What can we do? There have been study after study done that show that like 90 some percent of the people that go to zoos don't read the signage. So what can we do to get information out there other than by starting a really awesome podcast to maybe get the information into eyes and ears uh, that are just skipping the signs and looking at the pretty animals and moving on?
0: Yeah, that's a great question and I'm definitely not the right person to answer that. Um, yeah, if if I had an answer to that, I think um, giraffe would be in a much better space. Um, I think there is a lot of experts now. I think zoos have improved their signage a lot over years. I think people have realised it has to be more visual and impactful rather than having too much text. You have to find the balance um, and have some yeah, high impact, easy to read, main facts that people can easily read. And then if you are interested, they can delve into more detail. Um, but I think there a lot of zoos have done some awesome work on improving their exhibits and their signage just to, to get more information out there. Um, obviously, videos are a great way. I think we um, also through social media, we get a lot of positive feedback when we post videos and and, and show day to day our work um yeah but it's the one million dollar question <laughs> how can we improve this and how can we reach more people if you find an answer please share it
1: <laughs> i definitely will um i noticed that you guys have an Adopt a giraffe program on your website tell me about that
0: yeah, that's uh, actually something we relaunched just last weekend. We did a lot of improvements. So if people have already adopted giraffe in the past, please come back and have a look. It's much better now. Um, our Adopt a Giraffe program is not the classical one because we do not own giraffe. We do not feed giraffe. Um, so our adopted giraffe live wild and free in a very large area in northwestern Namibia where Julian and I started our love affair with giraffe and each other Um, and um, our research team um, goes out there normally between eight and ten times a year for a survey trip for a 10-day to three-week survey trip where they um, take photos of all the giraffe in the area and count them and continue basically the studies we did before Um, and a few of the animals we nominated as our adopted giraffe animals and when they see them they definitely take photos and they publish them in our online portal they write a little bit about the giraffe what they have been doing some of them hang out with some mates some might have had calves Um, and so yeah they share a little bit about the life of this giraffe but also about their day-to-day research by posting photos and little stories. And, um, yeah, this is a way for us to, to engage with, with people out there and hopefully create some more interest and passion for giraffe and, and develop more of a relationship. But the, um, our new adoption portal also allows for some interaction between um, all the adoptive parents. They can There's, like, forums where people can exchange information and, and chat. So hopefully that becomes quite interactive over time. And, um, yeah, it's just a, I mean, it's, it's not a classical adopted giraffe. It's symbolic, but, um, I, we hope that people, um, fall in love with these animals and, uh, enjoy learning more about them.
1: I think that is such a cool, uh, cool way to do things right now. That is, I love how you're taking advantage of modern technology to make that a little bit unique and different. That's really cool. Thanks. Um, yeah. As I was poking around the website, I noticed something that I actually thought might be an April Fool's joke, but apparently is not, as you posted it in January. But there are dwarf giraffes? Tell me about this.
0: Yes, there are indeed. And um, yeah, funnily enough, we recently, um, two of our researchers, one in Uganda and one here in Namibia, um, saw a dwarf giraffe and initially um yeah, the one in Uganda was. It's in Murchison Falls National Park. There's, as I said, 1,450 giraffe, and uh, this one that looked a little bit different. And uh, so uh, we photographed it and took measurements and could determine that it is a dwarf giraffe. Just like there is human dwarfs or dwarfism in in um, in other species, there's obviously dwarfism in giraffe, and it has never been described. So. Here in Namibia, there's also one. His name is Nigel. Um, I actually visited him a few weeks ago because he is on a f- private farm, um, a big game farm, um, not far from Windhoek. And um, he's doing really well. And he, when you first see him, it just looks like a juvenile giraffe until you realize he's six years old.
1: <laughs> oh, wow. That's really cool. How, how tall is he?
0: Um, he's about 1 meter 80, I think
1: okay cool that's uh don't know what that is in your size. let me oh look yeah no I'm going to do the math <laughs> later and I'll put it in the podcast don't worry excellent <laughs> yeah you said that and it's like I, oh man I, I have yeah, no clue I yeah I have no idea oh America <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's time for Interrupting 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 John hmm Hello, it's me. Okay, so that comes out to about 5 foot 10.86 inches, which is especially interesting since many baby giraffes, when they are born, are right around 6 foot tall. Also, I have to make fun of myself a little bit for the absolute pause when she said that number. You could just hear my brain trying to process it and uh, coming up with nothing. Gotta love the metric system, y'all. All righty, back to the interview. Very cool. That's that's really interesting. So, were there any other uh, interesting facts or studies or or things that you guys are doing that you wanted to share with my listeners?
0: I mean, there's just lots of interesting things we 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 still learn. I mean, with the um, different species, for example, people always ask us, "Can you tell them apart by their patterns?" and um, we have realized you you can't. There is more variation um, within a species than there is between the species. So um, there is some quite good indicators that show can tell you when you when you send me a photo of a giraffe, I can have quite a good guess which species it is. Um, but it's not always right. But if you tell me where you took the photo, then I definitely know which species it is. So um interesting. Really
1: interesting. But, yeah, it is because um, I always pride myself on like when I'm at a yeah. zoo, I can tell and everyone, you know, what species of giraffe we're looking at from the patterns. And now I'm yeah. finding out that I'm wrong. So that's good. Yeah,
0: I mean indicators, but it's not it's not a telltale. We often get photos sent and said, I found a Maasai giraffe in Atosha National Park in Namibia. It's like, no, you didn't. <laughs> <laughs> so, but um yeah then we 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 study their movements so we we tag some giraffe we put trackers on them and they actually we can follow them on remotely on our computers and we realize that yeah some giraffe walk a lot and some giraffe don't some giraffes walk a lot in a small distance back and forth and move a lot in in a very small habitat uh, or home range, whereas other giraffes just walk overnight 40, 50 kilometers because they can. So um, we are just learning a lot um, from these trackers and we learn that giraffe cross country borders, which – we obviously suspect it because they don't really care about passports and borders, but um, it's really good to have this information, and then you can engage with with local partners and governments and say, "Look, these giraffes are actually sharing the space, and we should really manage them differently." So it's there's so much still to learn about giraffes, which is is, is really um, makes it really fascinating.
1: Absolutely. And and makes uh, the giraffe really lucky to have, have people like you out there. Um, I notice that you keep saying giraffe. Is the plural of giraffe giraffe?
0: Um, I think you can say giraffe or giraffes. We just decided you have to be consistent and we stuck with giraffe.
1: Makes sense. I would like to petition to make it giraffe because I just think that sounds cool. I don't know. Okay, okay. sounds very cool. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> that's going to be my new conservation mission. It's not saving uh, animals. It's just changing the pluralizations. That's that's my goal now. <laughs> um, very cool. Uh, this is all just incredible. And I again, I'm I'm so thankful to have you here. Um, and so how can people help if they want to to help uh, the GCF?
0: I mean, there's two things basically people can do. One, as I said before, it's really important to get the message out there. Most people don't know that giraffe are in trouble. Um, so yeah, tell your family, tell your friends, um, inform yourself, read some stuff, know your facts and then share them with others. Um, but then in the end, we always say giraffe can only be saved in Africa by Africans. So in order to do the work, in the 21 current range states of Giraffe, we obviously, um, it costs money. <laughs> so donate, give us money and help us do our job. Um, we have lots of ideas. We have lots of projects that we really want to do, or we have partners who are keen to do something with us. Um, and all of this obviously requires funding so that is really important um, and then uh, celebrate world giraffe day help us make 21st of june the biggest day for giraffe in the world
1: it's time now don't you know we've come to the end of the show but there's one tale left to go you're gonna laugh and say oh no it's time for the rock safari so poop story hit me
0: Um, Yes, actually, (laughs) we have a tradition in our family that when we are out in the field and we find giraffe poop, I don't know if you have seen a lot of giraffe poop, it's um, very dry. um, And after it has been lying in the sand for a day, it's totally dry, especially here in Namibia when it hardly ever rains. So we often have a giraffe poop spitting competition. So you take a giraffe poop between your lips and then you spit it as far as you can. And there's a lot of kids here in, in Namibia who grow up doing this, not only with giraffe poop, but with other antelope poop. And some uh, we recently were out with some friends who, who grew up here in Namibia and man they could spit far <laughs> <It was> really, <laughs> they put us to shame and some people really do it like like the the cherry stone they put it on their tongue um i'm a bit reluctant i just put it between my lips and um, spit but yeah hours are fun
1: that's amazing you are I, i've i've had don't I've do had... this at home kids <laughs> I've had 70-some poop stories poop on this podcast, and you're only the second one that involves intentionally tasting them. So uh, congrats on that. <laughs>
0: yeah no it's uh it's it's always fun
1: amazing
0: (laughs) we did it years ago with with our kids we we were actually in the field with the BBC PBS film crew um we were really lucky to do a a documentary that was eventually narrated by Sir David Attenborough Mm -hmm. so um they uh, wanted us to to show this (laughs) and uh so we 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 did a poop spitting competition but unfortunately it didn't make it into the final documentary but uh, that is a shame said sir david attenborough saying "Here's oh, here's the fantasy family spitting giraffe poop <laughs> <laughs> in the wanap river
1: <laughs> incredible and on that note thank you so much for doing this i really appreciate it
0: no, my absolute pleasure. Thank you. And um yeah, thank you for helping us get the giraffe conservation message out there.
1: I told you it was gonna be an amazing poop story. Poop story. Or maybe at this point I actually need to make a new stinger. Poop Sing. nailed it. Anyway, I'm incredibly grateful for Steph to coming on here and doing this podcast. I had such a blast learning about this amazing organization, which you can check out at giraffeconservation.org or on Instagram at giraffe underscore conservation. You can also find them on Facebook. Just search for Giraffe Conservation Foundation. Ah, Darn it, y'all just stumbled upon my little secret. For my entire life, despite knowing the word is giraffe and having never mispronounced it when speaking, whenever I read it, I have this weird habit of saying giraffe. I don't know why, but I do. And I have not slipped up once this entire episode. I haven't had to make any edits because of that. I've made edits because I say stupid things, but not because I say giraffe. But I totally just said giraffe, and I left it in here to make you all have some fun laughing at me. So go ahead and have your giraffe laugh. And listen to the Steiderk. The Rossifari Podcast is produced, hosted, and engineered by John Rossi. Editing and fact-checking by John and Dr. Zoe Vesley gross Our theme song is Sevens by Nathan Burke, performed by Nathan and John. Interrupting John theme and additional voices by Taylor Isaac Gray.